KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute.
KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Hi, everybody. It's Mike, and it's good to be here. Thanks for listening. Eleven minutes or so, ten minutes or so, after the hour of 11 p.m. on Monday, the 11th of December. Welcome to Radio Orbit, everybody. And uh, thanks right off the bat here to Debbie Johnson, Free Range Radio Theater. As always, great stuff. Doing the Grinch, who stole Christmas. Wonderful stuff on the radio, as always, from Debbie Johnson, one hour before this program at 10 p.m. every Monday, all right? Kelvin and Jason doing it up before that, jazz plus blues equals Frosty the Snowman or something. Uh, Tech Radio, good stuff, as always. Jeff Wheeler starting things off with Uncommon Light, 3 to 5 p.m. every Monday. Jeff wearing his rock and roll shoes this afternoon, actually playing some great music. And uh, Monday's great radio on KOPN always, all right? Glad to be a part of it. Thanks, everybody, last week who participated in the program. Thanks to John DeCamp, former state senator from Nebraska. You heard it right from the horse's mouth last week from the author of the Franklin cover-up. Breaks the case on elite pedophile gangs operating within the USA with complicity and participation from the likes of who knows who. What's happening in your town, your community? That's what you can do, uh, you know, protect your own children, pay attention to what's happening in your own communities, make sure you know what's happening there, all right? We also heard the great music of Ben Boatwright, cool new music from Ben up there in Jefferson City, or down there, I should say. If you missed it, on the web, www.mikehagan.com, H-A-G-A-N, in the program archives, all right? And you can find the music stuff in the music archives as well. Tonight, been doing this a lot of late, but like the last few weeks, we'll start the show right off with our guest, won't wait till the midnight hour. Mr. Jack Cole, he's the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P. It's an acronym for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We'll also be mixing it up with the music of Sublime, if you didn't notice that right off the bat. Uh, started things off there with Garden Grove. More from them along the way tonight. But right now we're going to jump right in and welcome our very special guest. As I said, his name is Jack Cole. He's a retired detective lieutenant, 26 years with the New Jersey State Police, and uh, 14 of those years in the Narcotics Bureau, mostly undercover. Jack Cole ended his undercover career living nearly two years in Boston and in New York City, posing as a drug dealer, a fugitive drug dealer wanted for murder, while tracking members of a terrorist organization that robbed banks, planted bombs in corporate headquarters, courthouses, police stations, and airplanes, and ultimately murdered a New Jersey State trooper. He bears witness to the abject failure of the U.S. war on drugs, and to the horrors that these prohibitionist policies have produced. He serves as executive director of LEAP. Again, that's Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, in an effort to help rethink and reform American drug policy. Mr. Jack Cole, on behalf of myself and my audience, welcome, and thank you for coming to Radio Orbit. It's an honor to have you on the program. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for the invite. All right, Jack. Well, uh, we've got you from the East Coast tonight. Where are you at? Are you in New Jersey or New York? I'm in Boston. In Boston. Okay. And uh, just back, I think, from uh, recently from a trip to the U.K., doing some of the business that we're going to be talking about tonight. Absolutely. All right. Well, before we get into the meat of it, I'd like to start off uh, with just a little bit about you. Let's give the audience some background about Jack Cole so they know where you came from and uh, why they should listen to your position on what we're going to be talking about and uh, uh, maybe just 
a little framework on where you've come from. Okay, Jack? Fine. Uh, where I came from mainly was uh, the <laughs> the background of being a, a very, very solid drug warrior who thought that uh, drugs were the worst thing uh, in the world, scourge of the earth, and uh, I was brought up to believe that uh, that the war on drugs was the only answer to this thing, and we had to go around and stamp out everybody that might use a drug and, and uh, lock them up or put them out on an island someplace and uh, segregate them from the rest of humanity. Uh, I wasn't the only one that was brought up that way. I was, I was taught that by law enforcement in our training. We were taught that uh, drug users were not just the enemy in the war on drugs, but they were practically demonic uh, when I I started the war on drugs in 1970, that was the beginning, actually, of the war on drugs. The war on drugs was actually coined and create, created by Richard Milhouse Nixon in 1968. Wow, so 38 years ago. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with drugs. It had everything to do with uh, the fact that he was running for the presidency for the second time, and he thought this time it would really be nice if he won. So he knew that if he ran as a strong anti-crime guy, he'd give him a lot of votes. But boy, if he could be in charge of a war, we see what kind of votes that brings in nowadays. And it did the same thing back then. Uh, he was elected in his first year in office. He managed to get the U.S. Congress to pass funding bills that would give massive amounts of money to any police department willing to hire officers to fight his war on drugs give you a slight idea how huge these things were. When I joined the New Jersey State Police in 1964, we had 1,700 troopers. We had a seven-man narcotic unit. Seven? Years, yeah, seven-man. Not very many people. But it was, a, it was a perfectly adequate for the job we needed to do in that state. And six years later, we still had those same numbers until October of 1970, when overnight we went from a seven-man unit to a 76-person bureau. We increased our size by 11 times in one step. And this was replicated with police departments across the United States. Uh -huh. So uh, that was where we implemented, literally, the war on drugs. And, you know, Mike, when you, when you take an organization, especially a police organization, and it by 11 times, you set up a great deal of expectation. And since What do you mean by that, Jack? Well, cops are judged mainly by the number of arrests they make, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we increased our size by 11 times, we were expected in the coming year to arrest at least 11 times more people for drug offenses than we did the year before. And uh, after two weeks of training... They designate one-third of us as uh, undercover agents. I happen to fall in that one-third, and that's where I spent most of the next, actually, 14 years of my life. Uh, we hit the streets, and we were supposed to arrest drug dealers, and that wasn't an easy job uh, in 1970 huh. uh, for a couple reasons. First being, we really didn't have much of a drug problem in the United States in 1970. So there weren't drug dealers on every street corner like there are now. There weren't drug dealers in every school like there are now. The, 
the main problem we had, if if you consider it a problem, was with soft drugs, drugs like marijuana, hashish, LSD, some psilocybin, the, the mushroom type things, the mind bending drugs. You know, mm. hard drugs such as heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine were virtually unheard of, certainly unheard of compared to what they are today. Mm-hmm. So uh, we hit those streets, and and there just weren't drug dealers out there to arrest. So, hey, hey, Jack, so the increase in the numbers of the people in the police squads was primarily generated from a political motivation? Absolutely. Okay, so so it's a top-down thing, and all of a sudden you got a whole bunch more people that are supposed to be looking for druggies and drug addicts and drug dealers, etc. That's right. Okay. Uh, And uh, I'll explain that to your audience, perhaps, by explaining what things were like in 1970 and what they're like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this should have been such a low-priority item. Uh, instead, we made it a war on drugs. And when I say low-priority, if you go back and you look at the statistics from 1970, you'll find that the likelihood of anyone dying as a result of the drug culture in that year in the United States was less than the likelihood of them dying from falling down the steps in their own home. It was less than the likelihood of them dying from choking to death on their own food at dinner. And as far as I know, Mike, we haven't started a war on dinner or stairways yet. Not yet. But who knows? (laughs) Uh, Some politician figures a way to get a vote. Right, right. Maybe we have time. But at any rate, away we went to arrest these folks, and since they weren't out there to be arrested in mass like uh, they are today, they took uh, undercover people like myself and they targeted us against small friendship groups, groups of uh, young people in college or in high school or in between, groups of maybe 10 to 15 people. As soon as we got into that group, we became their friends. And come a Friday night, school would be out, they'd be off work, somebody would say, hey, you want to get high? And of course, Mike, if nobody said that, that was our job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, if anybody right, right. took us up on it, right. uh, I, at the time I was working about 30 miles out of New York City in a suburb. There were no drugs in suburbs back then. They just didn't exist in the suburbs. So if anyone took us up on this idea of getting high, one of the friends who happened to have access to a family car or something would go around to each of the other friends and say, Hey, you want to you get high tonight? Some people might say yes, others might say no. Mm-hmm. They said yes, they would take an order from well, What would you like to get? I'm going to make the run tonight. Right, what do you want? Somebody might say, well, give me a couple of joints. Uh, somebody might say, well, I'll take a hit of acid. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was a long weekend, somebody might even splurge and say, uh, uh, give me a, a lid of pot, mm-hmm. which is an eighth of an ounce. Eighth of an ounce, yeah. Uh, even Valium was big back then. Really? Double yeah. Hits of Valium, that's that, that's right? actually funny you say that because I remember as a kid, I was uh, I was born in 1964, and I remember as a young kid, under 10 years of age, so probably in the early 70s, that uh, that my dad had Valium, and it wasn't you know it was like at the time I didn't never thought of it, but as I got older, I realized well, what the hell did he need that for? And he he always had a bottle of Valium sitting around, <laughs> you know. Most adults did back then. Yeah, it was one of the yeah. sanctioned ones that was yeah. okay, you know. So anyway, they 
the the person who who uh, collected this little bit of money would come around to me and and ask me what I wanted, and I'd put my order in for the same tiny little bit of drugs. Right, and you're a cop at the time, and you're undercover. Sure. Right. And off they'd go to New York City. They'd be back in an hour and a half or so, and, they, and when they passed these drugs out to their friends, when they handed it to me, they became a big-time drug dealer. And I would stay there until I got every single person in the group, which was very easy to do because nobody was making any money on this. They probably weren't even getting the gas fare back. Uh, so the person that made that run the first night didn't sure didn't want to make the run the next night. <laughs> Uh, so the next night it would be person B, and the next night person C, and so on and so forth. I'd stay till I had every one of them, and I might be working 10 of these groups at the same time. So very quickly I was racking up arrests, or not arrests, but charges on these people. Mm -hmm. And you know, Mike, back then you didn't even have to do that to be considered a drug dealer, because our bosses wanted this to look like it was absolutely the most necessary thing, the war on drugs I'm talking about, the most necessary thing that had ever happened. They had to do that because, for instance, in my organization, they had just hired 76 fresh young faces to replace a seasoned troopers that they brought in from the road to make narcotics agents. Hmm. And they had to pay their salary forever. So they had to keep this federal money coming. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, self-perpetuating uh, once it gets going, right? Oh, it, it 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 has a life all its own. So what would happen is the way the the drug laws are written, they're, they're written virtually the same in every state. In New Jersey, it said uh, it's illegal to distribute a controlled dangerous substance, and then it gave you a big long list of the substances. It said nothing in there about getting money for this. So. They didn't even have to get money to be charged as a drug dealer. Now, right, it's like you're saying that originally these guys are just collecting money between buddies, and, go, and the guy goes up there and he just pays. I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not a money-making operation. It was just one right. guy going up to get the drugs for a bunch of friends. Well, but even that had, had some money involved. What right, I'm talking right, about right, right. had no money involved. Hmm. You know, drug use, especially soft drug use, is a very social thing. Right. People will stand around in a circle and they'll Share. work up a joint, take right. two tokes on it, hand it to the person on the right. That's part of the, in fact, that's part of the whole deal is that it's a social thing. You share that's right. it. Right. So it'll go around the circle once and the second time around, uh, somebody would hand it to me and now it's, it's only a, a small bit of that marijuana cigarette. When they handed it to me, I'd pretend to take a Toke on this. Mm -hmm. I'd knock the flame off the end of it and stick what was left of that into my pocket. And that night I'd submit that as evidence. <laughs> as evidence that the person who handed it to me had distributed a controlled dangerous substance. Wow. And, 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 then, and this was standard procedure. Everyone was doing the same thing you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was pretty pathetic. Back then they were going to jail for seven years for that. Holy gosh. Offense. So. We would uh, we would stay out there until we got ninety ninety five people like this, and then uh, we'd get uh, three hundred fifty cops. Five o'clock in the morning, we'd swoop into their neighborhoods and kick down all their doors, drag them out in chains. Jesus. And uh, we would have already alerted the the media 
who would be down at the police station when we arrived to take their pictures and, and destroy any credibility and respectability they had in their communities. Mm-hmm. And then we would point to these people and say to the media, look at this, look at how terrible this problem is. We just took 95 drug dealers out of your community. Right, right. We've got to stop this. This mm. is the worst problem we, we've ever encountered. We need more police. We need more money. We need to make more arrests. Mm-hmm. And on and on it went. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it very, very quickly became a huge enterprise. Which was essentially manufactured. Yes. Yes, it truly was. Uh, so here's what happened as a result. Yeah, I mean, this went on for you for a long time. You were involved in this for a long, long time. Yeah. All right, so please continue. Well, as a result, we had things like, uh, for instance, how many people were using drugs before the war on drugs, uh, according to the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration? In 1965, there were 4 million people in the United States who had used an illegal drug. But after 30 years of fighting this war, according to the DEA, there are 110 million people in the U.S. who have used an illegal drug. That is a problem 27 times larger. (laughs) Excuse me. That's okay. Um, So that is uh, that's a a major escalation. Wow. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the drugs themselves. Hmm. Uh, how about the supply of drugs? Back when I started in 1970, a good seizure for a cop or a, a state cop or a local cop executing a warrant on someone's house might be to seize one ounce of cocaine or one-fourth of an ounce of heroin. I mean, people were getting promoted for that sort of thing. Right. By 2002, we were seizing multiple tons My gosh. of both heroin and cocaine in, in individual seizures. The largest I know of was uh, uh, 10 tons of heroin and 20 tons of cocaine. Uh, while I was in, in the United Kingdom last week, uh, their Navy just seized another 11 tons of cocaine. And, you know, nothing changes on the street except drugs get cheaper, more potent, and far easier for our kids to access. So there's another way to look at this. How about the purity level and the cost to get high? Uh, when I started buying heroin, on the streets, we bought what were called tray bags because they cost $3 a bag. We always bought them in multiples of two okay. because that's what the heroin users did. Of course, we wanted to look like heroin users. <laughs> I'm sorry. I uh, got a bit of pneumonia while I was over in the U.K. and I got something of a cough tonight. Yeah, we should uh, let everyone know that Jack's you know, on the air with us here at 12.30 in the morning on the East Coast, and he's been under the weather for a little while, so appreciate that he's taking the time to do this, because uh, he actually has pneumonia, for God's sake. <laughs> All right. This, this, is, uh, this is worth doing. Okay. Every-
everybody in my organization does it because we believe in it, not because we get paid. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit, though. Uh, so I, I was telling you about the heroin. The reason we bought them in multiples of two was that's what the heroin users did. And, of course, the reason they did it was they had to cook up and shoot both bags at the same time to get high once. So in 1970, beginning of the war, it costs an average of $6 to get high once. Hmm. The reason they had to shoot both bags at the same time is, as I told you, hard drugs were almost unheard of at the beginning of the war. To have enough heroin to go around to the far fewer amount of heroin addicts we had back then, uh, it had been so diluted to have enough, it, it was coming in at a street uh, level at one and one-half percent pure. It was called garbage drugs on the street. So I, I uh, and when I'm giving my talks, I've downloaded a, uh, a chart from, from DEA's website uh, that talks about heroin purity and, and price on average by the year from 1980 to 1999, okay. and they've, uh, DEA has kindly adjusted those prices back to all, so they're all uh, equivalent in $1980, so you can compare with them well. And when they start with uh, 1980, after 10 years of fighting this war, they point out that uh, the, the uh, purity level had already more than doubled up to 3.6%, and the price had already dipped to $3.90 to get high. And after 30 years of fighting this war, the price had plummeted to an equivalent of $0.80 in 1980. And the reason it is so relatively cheap to get high today is because by 1999, the purity level of heroin was coming in at 38% pure. Now, that's a problem 25 times worse than it was at the beginning of the war. Okay. And according to DEA, last year on both the coasts of the U.S. and in Chicago, they were receiving uh, street-level heroin at over 60% pure. Mm-hmm. Now, we wonder why we get so many overdoses out there. Well, this is the reason. Yeah, let, well, I mean, we're so, that's sort of a side note, but let's talk about it real quickly because... I think people have a misconception about overdose and when it, how and when it typically happens. They sure do. Uh, you know, in the movies on TV, you, you get this idea that these people shoot more and more dope in some crazy attempt to get higher and higher until they, their body can't take the poison anymore and they fall over dead. That is not the way an overdose happens. It happens for one reason, one reason only. That is because they get what's known in the trade as a hot shot. <laughs> and all a hot shot means is that the user has no way to tell how much of that powder they're buying in the package is actually the drug and how much is actually the cutting agent. Too much drug, they're dead. It's as simple as that. And, of course, with an unregulated, uncontrolled market, there's no way to tell. Impossible. Okay. All right, look, uh, Jack, that's actually a good place to take a little break here, okay? Thank you. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour here, everybody. We're with Jack Cole. He's the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P. That's an acronym that stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Uh, Jack was a undercover 
New Jersey cop for 14 of his 26 years on the force. And he's got amazing stories and information to share with us. So stick around. We'll be with him for at least another hour and a half, as long as we can keep him with us, if he doesn't uh, uh, have to make a quick, <laughs> a quick trip to see the doctor because he's with us with pneumonia tonight, as a matter of fact. But uh, he's been strong enough uh, to stick around and do the program up late into the night. So I hope everyone appreciates the fact that he's here with us. All right? Okay, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, we'll continue with a little bit of music here back in just a few minutes with Jack Cole. On the web, by the way, at www.leapleap.cc. All right, you can link there directly from my site as well at mikehagan.com. And uh, one more time, Jack Cole from Leap. Thanks for being here. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Burritos from Sublime.
Yeah, it's Burritos from Sublime. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, about 11.37 on the 11th of December, 2006. And uh, I sort of broke one of my rules. I guess it's not a rule, it's sort of a guideline with regard to music tonight. I chose the band Sublime for obvious reasons, if you're familiar with the music and with the band. Uh, the guy who was the sort of brains behind Sublime, and that's not to take anything away from the other two members of the band, but Brad Noel was his name. He was a guitarist, vocalist, wrote most of the music, and uh, died in 1996, as a matter of fact, in May in San Francisco after shooting up some heroin that was much more potent than the brown Mexican that he was used to. And... Uh, just like Jack is talking about there, he got a so-called hot shot, and he passed away, but left us with some amazing music. And we'll share some more from Brad Noel and the gang, Sublime, throughout the program tonight as we talk to Jack Cole. But uh, wonderful music and an interesting conversation for sure, important information that Jack is sharing with us. So we'll say hello again to Jack Cole, Executive Director of Leap. Jack, thanks again for sticking around. You're welcome. How would you like to hear about what Leap is? Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Let's talk about Leap and m maybe how it uh, how it came into existence, and then a little bit about what you guys are doing. Sure, and then we can go back to uh, this terrible war. All right, and maybe end eventually by giving you some some real ways that we can can uh, beat this pro terrible problem we've created. But Leap, uh, law enforcement against. Prohibition was created by five of us, all former cops, who, after we got done with our police... Team, How long ago, so, Jack? How long ago did you guys uh, uh, do it? When was LEAP? Oh, when were we founded? Founded, yeah. 2002. 2002, okay. Yeah. And uh, when, we, when we came out of law enforcement, uh, we all felt so bad about uh, our part in implementing what we now consider an unjust war that we sat down and we said to her, what do we really want to do? What should we be interested in doing as law enforcers? And we, when we boiled it down to the very essence, we decided what should, we should really be interested in doing is lowering the incidence of death, disease, crime, and addiction. And sadly, all four, to, four of those categories are just made infinitely worse by the war on drugs. Hmm. So definitely that wasn't what we wanted. And after much study, we decided what we do want is we want to end drug prohibition, just like we ended alcohol prohibition in 1933. Because as law enforcers, we know that the day we ended uh, alcohol prohibition, the next morning, Al Capone and all these smuggling buddies were out of business. Hmm. They were off our streets. They were no longer out there killing each other to control the market, this very lucrative market. They were no longer killing cops charged with fighting that useless war. They were no longer killing kids caught in crossfire and drive-by shooting, all the, all the things we have today, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we are sure that we could end all this violent crime that's out there today by uh, coming up with a system of legalized regulation of drugs. And we're also sure that uh, there would be a lot of other wonderful outcomes, for instance, uh, with a controlled, regulated market, nobody would have to die of an overdose. Uh, with
regulated market, uh, drug intravenous drug users wouldn't be sharing needles and therefore spreading AIDS and, and hepatitis, which according to the uh, Center for Disease Control, 50% of all new cases of AIDS and hepatitis in this country can be traced directly back to drug users sharing needles. Hmm. But instead of uh, allowing us to give those folks a nine-cent needle, uh, the drug warriors say that would send the wrong message. So the message we say send is obviously use and die because uh, we allow those people to contract those terrible diseases. And then we pay $20,000 per year per person to give them medicine for that, and they're still going to die this horrible, horrible uh, so LEAP went from those five founding members in 2002 to over 6,000 members today. We're no longer just cops. We're cops, judges, prosecutors, prison wardens, even DEA and FBI agents mm -hmm. help mm -hmm. make up our uh, speakers bureau of 155 speakers we have. We have membership in 65 countries, and uh, we've just we've opened this up to the public. By 2008, we're hoping to get a million private citizens who uh, will sign on and say they are, they're backing what the law enforcers of Leap have, have come up with as a as a way to solve these problems. And they can do this. People can find out more, and they can actually sign up and become members of Leap at the website. Absolutely, yeah. You can go right to that website. There's places that says join. I want to join. Uh, we don't ask for any money. There's no dues or there's no meetings to attend. Uh, it's like signing a petition. Uh, all you're saying is I agree with these folks that this the legal legalized regulation of drugs is is something that has to be discussed because we are a uh, international nonprofit educational organization, and that's all we do is is discuss this problem. Once once the discussion goes out, then it's up to the public to decide what they want to do with it. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, you mentioned that you're an international organization now. You're in all these different countries. I want to talk a little bit about how you're being received, and I'd also like to talk about precedent-setting models. Are there other places on the planet, different countries that have a different approach to drug policy, and are they having, uh, are they getting on better? Uh, yes, yes and yes. There are other places, and they are getting on much, much better. Uh, you know, when, whenever I talk about legalized drugs, legalized regulation of drugs, which is what it is, the very first question I get asked is, uh, well, won't that cause everyone to use drugs? And it's, it's a very good question. But the answer to the question is uh, absolutely not. It won't. As a matter of fact, we didn't have an illegal drug in the United States until 1914. I think we got through the first 200 years of, uh, of the country pretty well. Mm -hmm. But... Just before 1914, again, for some reasons that had very little to do with drugs, mm -hmm. uh, the government decided they were going to, they wanted to make heroin illegal or opium illegal. 
1.3% of the population in this country is addicted to drugs, and we can't have that. So they passed the 1914 uh, Harrison Anti-Drug Act, which made opiates illegal. Then later cocaine, after that marijuana. But let's fast forward ahead uh, 56 years now to 1970. We're just getting ready to start this war on drugs, and the government needs a good reason to say that it's it's necessary. So they did a, a survey of the population. They discovered that 1.3% of the population was addicted to drugs in 1970. So can't have that. we got to start a war on drugs. Now, it's today, it's 36 years later. We've already spent more than a trillion tax dollars to prosecute this war. And every year we continue it, we'll dump another $69 billion down that same rat hole. And uh, we made more than 35 million arrests in this country for nonviolent drug offenses. That's over 10% of our population. <laughs> yeah. We've got, uh, we've got 2.2 million people in prison now. How many of those are 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 in, on these soft drug offenses? Well, the the vast majority are in there for drug offenses. And when you count the people who are in there for uh, property crimes and and some even violent crimes that are related to drugs or not to drugs but to drug prohibition, uh, it goes up to about eighty five percent. But with all this. With all this money so ill-spent, all these lives lost, today, 1.3% of the population is addicted to drugs. So nothing, Mike, has changed in a 100 years, whether the drugs were perfectly legal, whether they were illegal, or whether they were illegal and we were fighting a war, mm-hmm. all 1.3%. So what's the lesson? People are going to do the drugs one way or the other. Well, that 1.3% is going to be out there no matter what we do. Right. And it's not going to go up no matter what we do. You know, that's mm-hmm. going to be pretty much a, a base uh, thing that we could count on. And it's not going to get larger if we come up with legalized regulation of drugs. As a matter of fact, if anything, we believe it will get smaller. Right. Um, you know, um, one, one thing I'd like to ask you about, I th- since, since we're talking about it, I've, I'm always interested in language. And, you know, we use one word, we use this word drugs, to sort of cover a whole gambit of different substances. But, but depending on the culture that you live in, there are certain things that are considered drugs, and there are other things that aren't, that certainly are. In other words... We have culturally sanctioned drugs that are that are peddled, but they're not peddled as such. You know, they're not. Certainly. And and then you have the ones that are not sanctioned, and those are the ones that are considered drugs. I, I think right offhand of coffee, of cigarettes, alcohol, even television. I consider television a very dangerous drug that's never talked about as such. But uh, at any rate, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about uh, about just the word drugs and about how that's become so. Uh, so blurry in and of itself. Sure. Uh, it depends on, as you say, which ones we want to say are illegal and 
and how we talk about them depends on whether we've labeled them as being illegal or not. The worst drug known to humans is nicotine. Mm. Far and away. Uh, much, much more addictive than heroin. And far and away the worst killer of any drug that we know of. Still, to this day, it kills 430,000 people each year just from ingesting that drug die in the United States. About 5 million people around the world. The second greatest killer uh, is alcohol. 110,000 people die in the United States every year from ingesting that drug. And I don't mean they get drunk and run off the road and kill themselves or someone else. Just ingesting the drug kills them. It eats holes in your liver, eats mm -hmm. holes in your brain. It is a poison. In the end, it'll kill you. And then peripheral crimes that are associated with alcohol or that, or that are connected to alcohol has to be huge. Oh, sure, and all the violence. My crimes God, it's such a violence. Uh, right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. Domestic right. violence and uh, all kinds of crimes. But uh, then, then we come to all the illegal drugs in the United States. Now, ingesting of all the illegal drugs in the United States in a year kills about 12,000 people. Now, 12,000 is a pretty good number, but that's a long way from the uh, 540,000 I just mentioned from Amazing. those two major drugs, isn't it? Amazing. So uh, drug warriors that say we have to do this in order to uh, save people's lives, I think, are being a little disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And then we come to that, that one particular drug that uh, John Walters, the drug czar of the United States, says is the most dangerous drug in America, uh, and that is marijuana. And there have been zero people die from ingesting that drug, not just this year, but in all of recorded history. Right, right. The question is dangerous to what? <laughs> you know, Mr. Edwards, it's dangerous to their, you know, to their way of life, maybe, but uh, certainly not dangerous to the individuals that are doing it. Well, we don't. We really don't get into good drug, bad drug right, uh, right. In, in in our thing in Leap because we say it doesn't matter. You know, these drugs could be every bit as bad as you think they are. They could be even worse than you think. The point is, the more dangerous the drug, the more reason there is to legalize and regulate and control that drug. Hmm. It's a simple thing. There's three ways that we can regulate and control drugs. We can we can have the corporate world do it, we can have the government do it, or we can have the criminals do it. Now, we've chosen the worst of, of uh, all three possibilities. The problem is they're we sort of all the, the same criminals. these days. <laughs> <laughs> no. <clears throat> I, I, it's true that I don't trust the uh, government much more than I trust corporations, mm. so, which is pretty darn low. So uh, hmm. uh, if I came up with a solution, which we'll talk about toward the end, uh, the the whole point would be to remove the profit motive. Because hmm. right, this, right, right, right. this whole thing turns on money, nothing else. Mm -hmm. That's what this whole thing is all about. All right. Well, you know, you, you make me think of a, a comment that a friend of mine made one time a long time ago and he was talking about the drug pr 
problem, quote unquote. And he said to me, and he said to a lot of people, as a matter of fact, he said, and I, and I paraphrase, but he said something like, you know, we don't have so much a drug problem as we have an addiction problem. And one of the major addiction problems we have is the addiction of intelligence agencies to large amounts of untraceable cash. <laughs> and, and as, you know, since the time I've learned a little bit about, you know, some of the involvement of, of these types of uh, agencies in this. Could you are, are you interested in talking a little bit about sure. how, where, where some yeah. or, or where a lot of these drugs are actually coming from? And I mean, it's no new new news. I think it's historical that uh, that governments have been interested in drugs. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, when are you taking your next break? Let me see how much. Well, we got, got about five minutes. We'll take okay. a break right around the top of the okay. hour. Well, let's let's just talk about it quickly. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Alfred McCoy called The Politics of Heroin that uh, that is probably one of the most scholarly, best-written books I've come across. And it's about uh, 700 pages long. It uh, documents uh, the role of the CIA in... Uh, using U.S. drug policy to destabilize countries around the world. Mm. And uh, they started, this started all the way back in the year they were created, 1948. And every year they've been doing something someplace. Uh, what, what it amounts to, for the most part, it seems to be that... Uh, if we have a country that we want to help out one side or the other, either the government or the people opposing, uh, we, we decide which side we want to help out, and then we allow that side to uh, produce drugs and uh, sell those drugs and take the profits that they're getting for the drugs to buy arms to fight these secret wars. Mm. And it's been going on since 48 in, in countless different countries. Uh, I just, it's too much to get into. But yeah, I and I mean, listeners, if they want to read about it, that's the book, Politics of Heroin. Right. And, and I mean, it, uh, he gets almost all of his information from declassified secret uh, information from, from Vietnam War and, and other. Right, Nam, Nam, there was so much going on during Vietnam, so much smuggling and all this. Yeah, well, in, in Vietnam, for instance, the CIA went in there in 1961, and uh, they were trying to get the, a group called the Hmong tribesmen to fight against the North Vietnamese forest. And the Hmong tribesmen lived, the hill people lived right down the, the border of uh, Laos and, and Vietnam. And they went to their, their chieftain, who was a guy named Bang Pao, and they told him, uh, gee, it'd sure be nice if you would fight these North Vietnamese for us. And Bang Pao pretty much said, well, what's in it for us if we do that? And the CIA figured, well, you only have one product, you know, uh, opium. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe we could hook you up with somebody that uh, get you a distributor. And they actually made the introduction between Bang Pao and a guy named Santos Traficante, who was a small-time uh, 
Mafia Dawn from Florida. Traficante, what a fitting name, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and he actually became an American success story. He was oh. never arrested again. Uh, and he lived to be a, a very old and very rich man and, and the largest heroin distributor in the world. Uh, since passed on, but uh, things like that just happen all the time. As a matter of fact, in Vietnam, then after this started, the CIA was using its uh, its air force, a group called Air America, Air America, sure, to fly the opium down from these highland villages where it was grown into uh, the lowlands where it was processed into heroin. And uh, as I say, there's there's country after country after country that this has happened. In. As a matter of fact, when I was working, I I look back on uh, on the 26 years that I was actually involved in this stuff, and when I was there, I couldn't see it. But now looking back on it, I realize we our bosses would say uh, we got this terrible heroin problem, and we'd work for a year or two on this heroin problem, and then say, no more heroin problem, now we got a cocaine problem, and <laughs> right. we terrible problem. cocaine problem, mm-hmm. and then we go back on the heroin problem, and when you look at the this time frame that these changes would happen, it's, it's following about six months behind when the CIA is going into another country, and, and this country happens to be the drug of choice of that particular country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when, Remarkable. When, you know, and when, of course, when we went into uh, uh, when the CIA went into help uh, the Afghans <laughs> fight against the Russian invasion, uh, they they gave uh, half a billion dollars a year to a group called the Mujahideen to fight the Russians, but that wasn't, you know, we all know a half a billion dollars would last about a day fighting a war, right? Mm-hmm. So that certainly isn't enough money to fight a war, so they had to have more money coming from someplace, and, and uh, uh, Alfred McCoy suggests that, that that money came from, he doesn't suggest that he documents that that money came from looking the other way, while well, that that heroin was sold in the United States mm-hmm. and guns were bought with it to, to fight the war in Russia. And who was doing that fighting for us? A young man named Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. yeah. who made almost all his money selling heroin out of Afghanistan to the United States. Amazing. And, and took that profit and just tried to destroy our country. Yeah, and the, and the Afghan heroin fields are ripe today, you know. Sure, and the same thing happened in the 80s with uh, when Ronald Reagan decided he was going to go in and try to destabilize Nicaragua mm-hmm. uh, and throw the Sandinistas out, uh, backing the Contras, which they created out of whole cloth from the uh, from the, the the people that had been in charge before. Uh, that's what the Iran-Contra affair was all about. It was when Ali North was selling guided missiles, anti-tank missiles, to Iran, a country that Reagan said we would never even talk to. And instead, they're selling anti-tank missiles to him and taking the money.
tank missiles in and giving that to the Contras, and the Contras were uh, flying cocaine in the U.S. and uh, uh, buying guns with the, the money they made. Amazing. All right, look, uh, just a little after the top of the hour, okay? Yep. Let's take a break here. All right, everybody, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, your imagination station. Stick around. We've got Jack Cole, the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We'll have Jack for at least another hour, and we'll listen to a little bit of music here in the meantime. Let's see, what's fitting? How about Jailhouse? No, maybe Caress Me Down. All right. A little bit more from our friends Sublime. Back with Jack Cole in just a few minutes. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia.
caress me down more from sublime great stuff and we'll hear more throughout the program from those guys all right it's mike you're listening to radio orbit kopn columbia 89.5 fm a little bit of business here real fast the new transmitter has been ordered and uh, we're putting the whole package together out there at the transmitter site and we hope to have the thing up and running in the next three months probably i think by march 1st uh, we should be transmitting a brand new signal out from uh, the transmitter that all of you have been a part of helping us get here at the station so thank you so much and uh, things are really moving forward with that we just want to let everyone know okay all right so as i said jack cole the executive director from leap law enforcement against prohibition is with us from his place up there in boston and uh, we're going to get right back to him here jack hi hi all right hey look let's talk a little bit more about leap uh, you've made a tremendous amount of progress in just four short years. You went from five people to over 6,000. So the question is, why is everyone getting involved in LEAP? What is it so special that you're doing? I mean, you obviously must have... You, you, the people that are involved with LEAP can point out what seems to be wrong and how things aren't working, but do you have ideas on how to fix things? Yes, we certainly do. And we... we uh the reason we're growing fast is we modeled ourselves after Vietnam veterans against the war because we thought when those folks came home from that terrible war and started speaking out against it, they had a unassailable credibility. You might not agree with them, but nobody could argue with them. What are you going to say? You're, you're not patriotic. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. No, you just couldn't argue with them. And we think we have that same credibility when it comes to the war on drugs. So... Uh, we're we're gaining people every day, and uh, very very important people. We have uh, uh, since we're international, we have uh, a senator from Canada, who uh, Larry Campbell, who was the former mayor of Vancouver, and before that he was the coroner, and before that he was twelve years. Uh, in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, four years undercover in narcotics. Oh, so he's uh, seen it too, yeah. We've got a U.S. governor. We've got uh, uh, our director for the United Kingdom is a man named Eddie Ellison, who when he retired, he was detective chief superintendent of Scotland Yard. He was operational head of drug, all drug task forces for England. Wow. I sits on our board saying we have to legalize all drugs. So... When we talk, people really listen. And we, as I say, we are a, a speaker organization, an educational organization. We've given over 2,500 presentations in the last three years and around the world, but mainly in the United States. And we, when we speak to people, we don't go out and speak to the, uh, the already converted. We, we want to speak to people who are completely against this idea. So we we don't uh, call for a, a drug policy conference down at the corner in 12th and Graham because we know if you do that, almost everybody walks through the doors on your side before you ever open your mouth. It's a waste of our time. Hmm. What we do is we, we uh, talk to rotaries, Kiwanis clubs, Lions clubs, chambers of commerce, uh, chapters of Military Officers Association of America, business clubs. Uh, do you talk to other cops? Oh, yeah, we, yes, certainly we do. But these are very conservative groups. Mm-hmm. And 
when we get done talking to these groups, about 80% of our audience agrees with us, hmm. of these conservative groups. Now, I'm glad you asked about the police. Well, you know, I my show's on at 11 until 2, and I, and I know that, you know, some of the... Uh, police that are out on the beat in Columbia this time of night, they have the radio on. I know some Certainly. listen to the show sometimes, and I'm hoping that they're tuned into this, you know? Well, I would hope so, too. Uh, we started going to police conventions two years ago. We've been to 18 of them now, where we set up a, uh educational display booth, very professional-looking booth, and we put in between three and five uh, speakers there to man that staff the booth and they're there for the entire convention and we're very aggressive we never sit behind the the table because again we feel if you sit behind the table the only people who are going to come talk to you are the people that agree with you so what we do is we stand out in the audience or in the uh, aisle mm-hmm. and anyone that comes down that aisle so much as looks at our banner or at us we got them by the elbow saying, hey, you heard about law enforcement against prohibition. We're cops, too, or we're judges, too, whichever mm-hmm. conference we're at. Uh, let us speak to you about the war on drugs. Now, less than 1% of them refuse to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And of all the other people that do talk to us, we keep very sharp track. Uh, and we, we couldn't even believe our stats the first couple of uh, events we went to, but those stats have held for all 18 conferences, and that is after we're through talking to these folks on a one-to-one basis, only 6% of them want to continue the war on drugs. 14% of them are undecided, and an amazing 80% of law enforcement people agree with us that if we're going to lower the incidence of death, disease, crime, and addiction, we have to end drug prohibition. Amazing. And the most interesting thing, Mike, about that that group, uh, of course, we can we convert a lot of people right there on the spot. So many people that say, uh, "Gee, you know, I never thought of it this way before. This this makes a lot of sense." Well, but then there's a lot of others that say, "Oh, I thought that all the time," you know. Right. And of all those people that say, "I thought that all the time," there's only a tiny little group of them who, before they talk to us, realize that there was another human being in mm-hmm. law enforcement that feels like they do. Right. These people are the majority, and yet they don't know it because, and and I did this myself, uh, I know this is why it works. Cops are so concerned about being labeled soft on drugs, soft on crime, not getting that next promotion, you know, because of, of what that might mean, that they... they don't even talk to their peers about what they really think about this. And as I say, I'm sure this happens because after just three years of working undercover, uh, by 1973 I had already decided that that the only way to help any of this would be to legalize Mm. drugs. And I never said a word to anyone until I retired in 1991. Amazing. Jack... Okay, optimist clubs, rotary clubs, conservative groups like this. Why should people who don't particularly use these types of substances, who don't use these types of drugs that are illegal, why should these people care? Well, they should care because of uh, all the all the the side effects of the war on drugs, uh, all the unintended consequences. They should care because uh, last year. 
we made one one million eight hundred sixty-five thousand seven hundred and twelve arrests for nonviolent drug offenses. Almost two million arrests. Almost two million, just last year. My God. And uh, fully half of those arrests are for marijuana violations. Oh. And because we have now been told uh, not to just arrest uh, drug dealers, but to also arrest drug users, eighty-eight percent of the marijuana arrests are for possession. So we are throwing this this net so wide. And, and it's become such a numbers game that we arrest just about anybody for anything, and people can get caught up in it uh, without even being involved in drugs. Hmm. And the reason I say that is, for instance, uh, I, I teach uh, ethics to cops, uh, entry level and, and veteran cops, and and one of the things I talk about when I teach ethics is uh, discretion, because police do have discretion, uh, especially in democratic societies, of, of whether to arrest or not on on some charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I say to these these young people who want to be cops in, in the academy, suppose you you've graduated now and you're in your home city. And down the street comes a car with five young people in it. These, these kids are on their way home from college. It's uh, you know, the, uh, holiday, and they're on their way home. And for whatever reason, you happen to stop this car, and, and underneath the fr- uh, front passenger seat, you discover a single glassine bag, mm-hmm. uh, like a one-dose bag of heroin or what you suspect is heroin. What do you do with it? And of course, uh, every time I say this, uh, whoever I'm asking holds up their hand like they got it in their hand and says, uh, why, I'd say, uh, who's this belong to? And of course, the whole class gets a good laugh out of that. <laughs> and then I say, yeah, well, what answer do you think you're going to get? And they say, well, probably everybody's going to say, I never saw that before in my life. Mm-hmm. Not much. Yeah, you know, so then what do you do? And every single one of them says, you're all under arrest. (laughs) Well, that's what we teach folks out there, and that's the wrong thing to be teaching folks. So I said, well, if you say that, what, what, uh, what do you get out of that? And they said, well, we get five arrests, you know. We get five digits. And truly, police get promoted on the number of arrests they make. No matter what they say, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is that is the main thing that they get promoted on. Yeah. Uh, so they get five digits for an arrest. By the way, police do not get promoted on the number of convictions they get. Nobody worries about the convictions. That's somebody else's problem. That's somebody else's problem. That's right. So they've got five arrests. And I say, yeah, well, now what do you think is going to happen with those arrests, you think those folks are going to be found guilty? And no, they're certainly not going to be found guilty. As a matter of fact, that uh, that report is isn't even going to hit the uh, district attorney's desk before it goes right in the circular file because uh, they know that they're not going to get uh, a jury to find any one of these five young people guilty for a single bag of narcotics or a single use bag 
under one of the seats. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, even if, if even if it did belong to one of the people in the car, there's a good chance that the other four don't know what it is. Right, you know? right. You're driving down the street and somebody sees that they're being stopped by a cop, so they got something in their pocket, they throw it under the seat. Maybe nobody else even knew about it. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, it doesn't have to belong to anybody in the car. Let me explain that. I had a guy call up and join Leap one day, and he said the reason he wanted to join Leap, this is a civilian, he said the reason he wanted to join Leap was his mother had bought a car, uh, a used car, and uh, for about a year she complained that the uh, the stereo speaker on, on the driver's side wasn't working. And after about a year, it, he finally took took pity on his, his poor mother, you know, and he said, well, okay, I'll fix the speaker. So he took off the four screws holding it and pulled it out, and inside was a kilo of cocaine. My gosh. And he said, just imagine what would have happened if my mother was driving along. <laughs> right. And, and they brought a do- drug dog out and sniffed out a kilogram of cocaine in her car. Right. Well, right. How's she going to explain it? Her car that she's had for a year. Right, right. I don't know anything about it. Right. Yeah. Well, since he found it, he was able to turn it in and, you know, and, and it was fine. But it, that's quite a different thing if, if the police find it. Yeah, amazing. How many times has something like that happened? I mean, well, it, it, with I mean, all the drugs out there today, I'll bet you it's, it's a pretty easy thing to have. Yeah, and, and I mean, even if it doesn't happen a lot, I mean, the fact that it can happen is just a travesty, you know, and a tragedy. Yeah. Well, and getting back to these young cops, I say to the young cops now, so what do you think happens to those five young people now that you just gave an arrest record? The next cop that stops them, are they going to have a an easier time or a hard time? Because when a cop stops a car, you get the driver's license, you get the ID from each person, <coughs> and you walk back to your car, and you call in the name and date of birth. And what do you get back on that radio? You get back arrests. You don't get back convictions. You get back arrests. There's never been arrested so you've labeled all five of these young people with an arrest for heroin. And what else has that done for you? I mean, there's, it's, it's terrible what happens to these young folks. You know, if you get in this country, if you are caught with so much as one marijuana cigarette, you're a young person, say, say young, uh, young father or mother, and you're going to college. You get caught with one marijuana cigarette. The first thing we do in most states is, even if you were caught uh, with that cigarette uh, in your uh, bedroom, we take your driver's license away from you. And you know, in in America, where we don't have much in the way of public transportation, what that means. That's a huge you live in rural or suburban America, that means you're no, you can no longer leave, be gainfully employed. You can no longer get to school, right? Right. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a major problem. And then just to make sure that these people can't get to school, if you've been caught with so much as one marijuana cigarette, we have a federal law that says you can no longer uh, receive a grant or loan from the government to go to school. 
But in the crazy paradox, Mike, of, of this war on drugs, if that same person wasn't caught with a marijuana cigarette, if they were convicted of raping someone or murdering someone, no problem. Go right down and the government will give you that loan. Amazing. Which sort of makes uh, makes you wonder about the message we're trying to send. Right? Isn't that what the drug warriors are always worried about, what message we're trying to, trying to send to our young folks? Sounds to me like the message we're trying to send is it's okay to rape and murder and pillage, just don't smoke a joint afterwards. Right, right. Which is a kind of strange message. It's ass backwards like so many other things. Yeah. Jack, before we get... I know we're going to talk about solutions in a minute, but there's another question here that, that's come up that I think is relevant now. Um, a gentleman on the chat room board says the drug war is big money for the prison industry boy is it uh, and some people would like the prison industry in this country to remain big because uh, it also has a psychological effect on us as citizens maybe you could it sure speak does a little bit uh, to and that. that gets into the racism thing which was a whole whole study on its own but let's talk about uh, the prison industry mm-hmm. here we And to do that, let's talk about how many people uh, get arrested. As I pointed out, last year it was 1.9 million. Right. But in 1969, you could count the number of people arrested for nonviolent drug offenses in the tens of thousands. Amazing. And then in 1970, when we increased it by uh, our, our police doing this by 11 times, it immediately shot up to 415,000. Uh, and it stayed at that until about 1980s when uh, two interesting things happened. Uh, first one was the politicians got into it and they said, hey, you cops are doing a great job, but if you arrest a few more people, we promise we'll back you 100%. We'll create the harshest laws that have ever existed, mandatory minimum sentences, uh, three strikes, you're outlaws. Right, that, uh, right. You know, you go away to prison for life, uh, no parole possible. And you only have to deal with these people a couple times. They'll go away uh, forever, case closed, problem solved. And at the same time, we got in that new man in the White House, Ronald Reagan, 1980. And Reagan said, uh, guys, you're doing a great job, but you're going about this from the wrong angle. you got to think about this like it's an economics equation. And the police are on the uh, supply side arresting dealers when they should be on the demand side arresting users. Because if you arrest enough users, you'll scare the users away. No users, there won't be any dealers. And that's when everything went to hell on the handbasket. Because mm-hmm. that's when we went from half a million arrests uh, a year, which had pretty much stayed at that for 10 years, up to 1.9 million last year. And that's why 88% of those marijuana arrests are for possession. And now let's talk about what happens to the people who are convicted of this stuff. Well, they go to prison. And as I told you, we we are such a punitive country here. All the the Western European countries imprison their population at or below 100 people per 100,000, with the exception of England, or United Kingdom, which is just raised theirs up to 120 per 100,000. Uh, the United States, as of 
2003 was imprisoning its population at the rate of 726 per 100,000, mm-hmm. or something eight times as many. Right. Uh, and what are we doing with those folks? We throw them in prison, we put them in there for mandatory minimum sentences and everything. Uh, they're in there at the cost to us, the average cost to a taxpayer, $26,000 per person per year. Okay, and some, as I say, are there for for life. But what's going on in these prisons? Well, we're now we we've made building prisons the fastest growing industry in the United States. Prison population has quadrupled in a 20-year period. Okay, hmm. you've got things like in in California. In the last 10 years in California, they increased their uh, prison staff by 25,000 people, and to get the money to do this, they decreased their teaching staff in schools by 8,000 people. And it's been, and it's been privatized big time as well, right? <laughs> yes, that's that's the next thing I want to talk about. Go ahead, Privatizing sorry, prisons, this has to be one of the worst things I ever heard in my life. They have privatized these prisons. We have prison for profit, which means that they're going to cut down on even the food intake, you know. They cut down on everything. And the people, it's already started, so we already have some private prisons out there. And the people who run these private prisons have gotten together and hired lobbyists to go to the U.S. Congress for what? More harsh demand laws, right. longer mandatory minimum sentences. Right, and more harsh laws, etc. This is obscene, mm. you know. And now let's let's talk about the racism that's involved, because this is where so many of our our prison population come from, or yes. the black folks in this country. All right. If you look at the Federal Household Survey, you'll discover that.
And when you do, you find that we imprison 717 white men per 100,000. And before I tell you how many black men we imprison, let me suggest to you that under the most racist regime in modern day, that would be the uh, apartheid government of South Africa in 1993, they imprisoned black men in their country at the rate of 851 per 100,000. No, we aren't far In the United States, in the year 2003, under the Prohibition government here, we imprisoned black men at the rate of 4,919 per 100,000. Oh, my gosh. Now, how anybody could look at that one stat and not see institutionalized racism in the implementation of the drug laws, I just don't know. Okay, look, we're at the bottom of the hour. Need to take another break here, Jay. Okay. All right. Wow, amazing stuff. Uh, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. My guest is Jack Cole. He's the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. You can check them out on the web at www.leap.cc. And you can also connect over there from my site from here on out, okay? All right, speak of the devil, let's play a song called Jailhouse. This is Sublime. One more time, KOPN Radio Orbit, back in just a few minutes with Jack Cole.
There you have it. That's Jailhouse, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, it's about 35 minutes after midnight now on the 12th of December, and we've got Jack Cole, the executive director from LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, with us on the line from his place in Boston. And, uh, Jack, thanks for sticking around with us. You're quite welcome. All right, so, so I guess the question... Okay, we've we've pretty much established that what's happened over the last 40 years has been pretty much a disaster. It's ruined countless lives. There's all kinds of money being made, uh, but a lot of the money being made now is uh, really not benefiting a whole lot of people. Um, You guys have organized to try to do some things about it. Let's talk a little bit about what you think we should do now. I mean, we're, we're, we're in a tremendous amount of trouble, it appears. Absolutely, and, and before we get into what to do about it, let me make two more little uh, points about the prison sure, please. industry, because they are amazing. Here, here's a statistic that really brings it home. There are more black people, black men, in prison today than there were slaves in 1840. Oh, Jesus. And they're doing exactly the same thing mm-hmm. they were doing then. They're working for corporations to the tune of 16 to 20 cents an hour. That's what's happening in prisons. So they just figured out another way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get, uh, this is all sounding kind of sad, and it doesn't have to be that sad. There are things we can do about this, and LEAP is doing them very quickly. Not only are we having this kind of uh, uh, impact on law enforcement people that we go to the conferences, we're also having a, a tremendous impact on politicians when we go to their conferences. Now, we haven't been to 18, but we've been to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conference is called the National uh, 
Conference of State Legislators. Okay. It's held in August each year. Uh, last this this year was in Nashville, Tennessee, and the year before was in Seattle, Washington. We set up our our booth there. We sent five speakers. We talked for three days straight at each conference, and we talked to just under 900 people in the combined two conferences, uh, legislators and their aides, and we discovered that we're doing even better with them. 82% of them agree, and only 4% want to continue the war on drugs. Hmm. What that says to me is that if we can show them any way that they won't lose one more vote than they gain by supporting these policies, they will end drug prohibition. I have no doubt in my mind that this will happen. And the way we have to show them is by getting as many people as possible to join LEAP. If we could, uh, by the summer of 2008, get a million private citizens to join us, uh, we're sure that being who we are, law enforcers, we can we can uh, force this to become an issue in the uh, 2008 presidential primary. Mm. And if we do that, we don't have to have any of the candidates on our side. All we got to do is get the, uh, the reporters peppering them with questions about the drug war, and no matter what they say, then the reporters are going to come back to us and, and ask our views on this. And we're going to get national and international coverage like we never imagined before. Right, right. I think that's a great, uh, a, a great goal because that's what it needs is, is is a national spotlight and and a chance to get these ideas out there so people can at least in their own head realize that there are many other uh, positions on this stuff. That's right. So it's so important that people join us, and we're also not just going after individual people to join. We're also uh, going after endorsements from organizations now. Uh, we have two law enforcement organizations, one in uh, Scotland, uh, the Strathclyde Scottish Federation of 7,700 police that we're, we're currently working with trying to get them to endorse us. And the uh, the chair of that organization just joined us as a, as a LEAP speaker. The Scottish have been very progressive now in their drug law, haven't they? Yes, they're 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 doing some very good things over there. Recently, just in the last yep. year or so. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. And the other one is a twenty-three thousand uh, member federation of police in the Netherlands. And then, of course, we'll be coming back here and trying to get people in the U.S. But let's talk about now uh, solving these problems because okay. they can be solved. And, and the way we would suggest uh, going about that is, as I said, if we can remove the profit motive, we can get rid of almost all of our problems. Because what we've done is we've created prohibition. Prohibition has never worked, and it's never worked for a very logical reason. When you prohibit any drug, it could even be sugar or caffeine, which, by the way, have both been prohibited, prohibited in the past. Right, and are both uh, drugs. I mean, That's I mean right. if you want to put them in, in, Absolutely. in the definition. Yeah. Sure, and uh, certainly sugar kills far, far more people than all the other drugs combined. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and caffeine's written into the labor contract of every labor union in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Here, here's what happens when you create a prohibition of a drug. You, you create instantly 
an underground market for that particular drug that's and that market is marketplace is filled with criminals. But worse, because the drug is now illegal, which makes it dangerous to to uh, produce and distribute because you can uh, go to jail for life, maybe, or you can get killed by other drug dealers that are trying to control the market. All the other things that happen because of those things, uh, an artificially inflated value is created for these drugs, which are basically weeds. I don't care whether you're talking about marijuana from a, a, a cannabis plant or cocaine from a coca bush or heroin from an opiate poppy. Right, they're essentially are just plants. weeds. Mm-hmm. They'll grow any place in the world, mm-hmm. and they are so prolific that until we say they're illegal, they have zero value, mm-hmm. no value at all. And then when we say they're illegal, as you know, uh, marijuana becomes worth more ounce for ounce than gold. Yeah, heroin is worth more than uranium. <laughs> heroin is probably the most expensive commodity on the face of the earth. It's just a weed, and cocaine falls somewhere in in the middle there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the process you set up by simply saying these things are illegal, and that value between where these these uh, products are grown and where they're sold, ultimately, that value can increase by more than 17,000%. Now, I mean, think about that. Right. As a I business mean. person, uh, U.S. supermarkets work on a, on a increase of 2% markup, and they do pretty well. So imagine a 17,000% markup. <laughs> whole armies of police can't arrest our way out of that. I mean, I, I let me put it this way. If, if a uniformed cop arrests a rapist in your community, the number of rapes goes down, right, for a while. If we arrest a, a robber, the number of robberies go down. We've got the guy. But if I arrest a drug dealer, the number of drug sales doesn't go down. I'm simply creating a job opening for hundreds of more people more than willing to take the risk for this obscene profit motive. Mm. So nothing will ever change. We're simply stirring the pot, and it costs us $69 billion a year to stir the pot. But if we take that profit motive out of it, then everything changes. How do you do that? Well, it's very simple. You end drug prohibition, which means one thing, legalize drugs, legalize all drugs, legalize them so that we can control them and regulate them and keep them out of the hands of our children. Our children, who, by the way, Michael, have said for the last 10 years in every government survey, it is easier for them to buy illegal drugs than it is to buy beer and cigarettes. Yeah, I, there's no question about it. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a parent myself, and I think I think about these types of things all the time. But I think it's also important to note that even though you guys really don't take a position on good drugs versus bad drugs, I think it's important to note that a parent should also be able to introduce a drug to a child that they think is a beneficial one. Uh, I think that you know all of these things should be on the table if uh, you know it's a, it's a matter of of personal freedom. I think. Well, I think you're right. In although, as I say, we don't certainly look at good bad good drug bad drug. However. We certainly believe in personal responsibility, mm. and and 
we believe that if somebody is an adult, uh, what we want to do is we want to keep it out of the hands of our children. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, if if somebody is an adult, whatever we consider the age for an adult in this country, once they they achieve that age, uh, what they put in their body should be up to them. Mm, I agree. Uh, maybe with the advice and consent of their family or their friends or their uh, uh, social workers or medical specialists or perhaps even religious instructors, but never, ever the police. The police should have nothing to do with this because we're really good at protecting you from me or me from some other person out there, but we're completely worthless at protecting an individual from his or herself. Mm -hmm. And it's when we're given that job that everything goes wrong. You know, it's, it's when we're given that job that we get all the illegal searches and seizures and all the people stomping all over the Fourth Amendment. Right. When was the last time you ever heard or saw in the papers about uh, an illegal search and seizure in a rape case or a murder case? Mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. This, this happens in drugs, and it happens because we've told our police officers they're, they're fighting a war on drugs, and when you fight a war, anything's justified. Wow. All right, Jack, earlier you talked about uh, other places around the planet that are having uh, different things going on. In other words, they're making progress. Let's talk about some of the countries. Tremendous progress being made. You just got back from from the United Kingdom. What's happening over there? Let's start there, maybe. Well, let's start with Switzerland, and then we'll go to the United Kingdom. All right, sure. Because Switzerland has started the, the best thing, I think, that it has come along so far. And it's the closest thing to legalization. What they did was, all the way back in 1994, they decided they were tired of uh, arresting their children and treating them as criminals because they made a mistake and started using heroin. They decided, we're going to treat this as a health problem. So they set up clinics around the country where, if you're a heroin user, you can actually go into that clinic and inject heroin up to three times a day using clean needles under medical supervision and the the heroin is provided for them by the government. Mm -hmm. Now, the outcomes of this are nothing short of spectacular. First outcome, there hasn't been an overdose death there since 1994 since the program started. Amazing. Uh, How many many ODs do we have every damn year here? Oh, I I don't know how many, but I know... uh, We've had hundreds and hundreds uh, this year alone just from people using heroin cut with fentanyl, which is a, a deadly concoction. Right, right. Just right. from that, they're dying. Uh, AIDS and hepatitis, because they're no longer using uh, sharing needles in Switzerland, has dropped to the lowest per capita rate of any country in Europe. So they're also affecting these terrible diseases, and according to the CDC, I think I mentioned before, uh, 50% of all, maybe I didn't, of all AIDS and hepatitis new cases can be traced directly back to people sharing needles. Mm-hmm. So we could we could save all that 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 horrible disease from spreading. Uh, third thing, crime was cut by 60 percent 
which is obvious because nobody, uh, for the drug users, that people that still feel they have to use heroin until we can wean them off that drug, they don't have to go out and prostitute themselves. They don't have to break into your car at night and steal your cell phone or do something worse to get the money for the drugs because they're free. And because the drugs are free, there are no drug dealers on the streets where these projects are because you can't beat free. Who would buy from you? No one, right? Right. And if the drug dealers aren't on the streets, as with uh, the end of uh, uh, alcohol prohibition, they're not out there killing each other, cops or kids. But even more important, they're not out there in our communities rubbing shoulders daily with our children in a position where they can lure them, entice them into picking up that nasty needle and becoming the next heroin-addicted statistic. And because of that one fact, uh, a 10-year study was just done on this project. Uh, The study was published in the very prestigious British uh, medical journal Lancet on June 2nd this year. And that 10-year study shows that in Zurich, there has been an 82% decline in the projected cases of new heroin users. 82% less in a 10-year period. Every other country in the world has registered more than what was projected. So this really works, you know. I mean, it really works. So you were asking me about uh, the UK. Well, uh, the Netherlands, by the way, picked up this program uh, five years after Switzerland did, and it's working just very well there. And while I was in the UK uh, last week, I was working with chief constables, they're called over there, not chief chief of police, uh, with several chief constables who have suggested... Uh, doing a similar pro- project in in the UK, and they want to uh, provide prescription heroin to all heroin users in the UK, which would it, is similar to legalized drugs. Mm-hmm. Only it's just for for heroin. So they're so sort of addressing these things on a on, on a on a substance by substance basis. Well, that's the only way they can address it because thanks to the U.S., the U.S. Uh, went to the United Nations in 1961, got the United Nations to create what's called the 1961 Single Convention on Dangerous Drugs, uh, which was signed on to many countries that year, and then it was brought up again in 78 and signed on by all but four countries in the world, and there are, there are little islands out in the Pacific someplace. Uh, but this has the effect of being an international treaty. Mm -hmm. And what it says, more or less, is uh, any drugs that are considered illegal in the United States are also considered illegal in our country. So these countries can't legalize drugs unless they can back out of that. So what they're doing, instead of legalizing them, is they're coming up with things like this, Mm -hmm. where they're... They say we're tr- we're treating this as a medical problem because that's not really legalizing the drug. It's it's just treating it as a medical problem, looking the other way, not arresting anyone for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many countries that are doing it now: uh, Switzerland, the Netherlands, uh, Spain, and Portugal just uh, decriminalized all drugs. They don't arrest for anything there. Uh, Italy has decriminalized some of the drugs. Germany's going that way. 
there's many countries that would like to do it, but the first country we've got to get to do it is our own, the United, the hardest one. Yeah. That's right. What What's happening south of the border? What's happening in Latin America and Mexico and in in South America? Well, <laughs> you surely been reading about what's happening on, uh, along the border in Mexico. It's the it's the worst bloodbath in history down there. I think. Uh, Police are getting killed by the dozens, and and uh, uh, private citizens are getting killed by the, the 20s and 30s of people. Uh, people are getting their heads cut off. Yeah, it's, it's a horrible a, situation. It's a big uh, fight between ruling, ruling drug lords, and this is the one crime area, the war on drugs, where police measure success in terms of uh, if we take off a major drug dealer, we actually get one of the big guys. The way we know that is suddenly we have a much higher murder rate <laughs> because everybody's scrambling for the top, right? Mm -hmm. And they're killing each other off, and then finally after a few months, things settle down, you got to a stability there, and nobody's getting killed anymore. And then we take somebody off at the top, and it starts all over again. Right, just a bunch of monkeys scrambling for the top. Yeah, yeah. amazing, absolutely amazing. All right, well, um, let's see. We're just a few minutes before the top of the hour here, so I need to ask you a question. We either have to wrap it up, or if you'd like, maybe you stick around for another half an hour. We, we, I've got more questions. We've got. I more. would like to stick around. As long as you're, you're willing to have me, and yeah. maybe we can uh, take some of those questions from people. Yeah, please, we'll do that. Okay. Good. So, so let's uh, uh, let let's take a break right now. Even though we're a little bit before the top, let's take a break here. You can get a glass of water or whatever, and uh, we'll take a nice five minute break here, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more. Okay. Terrific, Mike. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, eighty nine point five FM. My guest is Jack Cole. He's the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. You can find information about Jack and his gang over at leap.cc. Jack was an undercover police officer in New Jersey for 26 years. Well, wasn't undercover that entire time, but for a big chunk of it. He has an amazing amount of experience, knows a whole lot about what we're talking about tonight, that being drug law, drug policy, the implications of what's been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, and uh, maybe some helpful solutions on how we might get ourselves into a better position. So uh, stick around. We'll be back with Jack in just a few minutes, okay? In the meantime, we got another one here from Sublime. This one's called Get Ready. I advise you to. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Somebody always gotta turn 
Get ready. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. That's Sublime. Great music from them all night. We're playing tracks from the album of the same title. I think the last album that they released, as a matter of fact, before uh, Brad Noel took a hot shot of heroin and went the way of so many other people, uh, much of which Jack Cole has been addressing tonight. And we'll get right back to Jack. It's just a few minutes after 1 o'clock now, 2 o'clock in Boston. So, Jack, you're a trooper for sticking around with us. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Look, um, some questions coming in from uh, here and there, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's the first one. A person asks about the relationship. What has happened between the relationship between cops and civilians? In other words, there used to be this... I mean, I remember when I was a kid even, and I, you know, I'm 42 years old, but when I was, was a kid, uh, you know, a white kid growing up in regular small-town America, you know, the cops were your friends, and they would help yep. you out, and they, and, but even me as a person who's never been arrested for a drug crime or anything like that, man, I, have, I certainly have a different idea of cops these days. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, what has happened is the war on drugs. The war on drugs, the, there's a problem when you use that kind of metaphor. Uh, in policing in a democratic society. Police are supposed to be, as you say, your friends. Actually, they're supposed to be problem solvers. Yeah, to protect and, and to serve, man. That's what it that's says. That's right, right, exactly. And, uh, and a good cop is supposed to be someone who tries to solve the problem before it becomes, comes to a point where they have to make an arrest. Mm. That's what's known as community policing. And it's the, it's diametrically opposed to the war on drugs. Because when you, when you fight a war, you have to have an enemy. And since, as I pointed out to you, by 2001, DEA was saying 110 million people in this country have used an illegal drug, uh, that means the war is pretty much on all of us. Or is it on drugs? Is the war is on people. It's a 
on our children, our war on our parents, a war on ourselves. Amazing. All right, a related question uh, from Matt. Question to Mr. Jack Cole. Does he think the police would use their weapons on the American public who support drug reform, and why is law enforcement the main org to stand against drug policy change? Uh, well, actually, law enforcement isn't the main organization to do that. The main organization to do that is is the administrative government. Right. So the and it doesn't matter which uh, party it is. Every party since since Nixon declared war on drugs, every party that's been in the the uh, White House has escalated that war. For instance. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton, in his 88 years in office, spent more in that time than uh, in all the time before him combined. Mm-hmm. But that's that's sort of the effect of the war on drugs, too. You you got to remember that uh, when we started this war in 1970, that first year we spent a uh, hundred million dollars on it, and we thought we were spending a lot of money. And last year we spent 69 billion, and it just keeps growing up all the time. But uh, his question about the police, uh, the police do what they're told to do, mainly. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they have laws that they have to enforce, and they don't, they don't get a choice on that. You know, if, if you got a bad law, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, that's, that's one of the reasons we don't believe in decriminalizing. Drugs. Yeah, you believe in those right. Yeah, when you decriminalize, you only decriminalize for the user, and that also uh, that means that everybody else in the chain is still a criminal. That means that the the values are still high enough that people are willing to kill each other. But it also means that you you're giving even more discrepancy or discrepancy. Uh, uh, you're giving more. Uh, chance to the police to decide who they're going to arrest and who they're not going to arrest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and when you do that, uh, in many cases, it's the poor and the and the uh, people of color that end up being the folks that get arrested. Right. You 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 gave some amazing numbers earlier about the situation yeah. that's going on. There. So what we believe is if if you got a bad law, throw out that whole law. Don't don't leave it up to. Uh, least discretion to do the right thing. Right. right. Okay. Um, we haven't talked yet about pharmaceuticals. How does this play into the whole picture? The pharmaceutical well, pharmaceuticals wouldn't play into it uh, hardly at all if uh, if what are now considered the illicit drugs were legal. But do you because think that they, do you think that they have any any hand in the in the fact that these drugs are re- remaining illegal? You think it's in their best interest? Oh, oh! You mean the companies? Right, I, I thought right. you meant the pharmaceutical. Uh, well, yeah. I guess I guess we should sort of talk about both. The companies, right? absolutely, certainly. Right. Well, continue. Let's, let's just talk about uh, what would happen if we legalized marijuana throughout this country. Yeah, forget about Prozac. Forget about all these other. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, there's so many things that that marijuana would replace, uh, and and we already have eleven. States where medical marijuana is is legal in the state. Of course, the feds still go ahead and and protect us by uh, arresting uh, terminally ill medical marijuana patients. 
some reason they think that's going to help us all. But but those 11 states, it's legal, and and that marijuana that's being used medically really makes a difference for many, many people. Mm-hmm. I know it because some of our speakers, law enforcement folks, are legal medical marijuana patients. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more people smoking pot, too, than people think. I mean, it's one of those oh, drugs. Sure. It's, it's been a closet drug for so long, but, I mean, it's prolific in, in, in all areas of society. And there's professors and lawyers and doctors. Everybody gets stoned, you know? Yeah. Yep, yep. But certain people get arrested and others don't. That's for sure. <laughs> right? That's, that's really for sure, yeah. Uh, and, and it's quite reasonable in a way. If you're going to throw out this net and it's going to be a numbers game, then you don't have time to go after uh, the people that are hard to arrest. You only go after the people that are easy to arrest, and those are the people out in the streets, which mm-hmm. tend to be people of color. It's a lot easier to get them than it is to go in and uh, uh, do some deep uh, undercover job uh, to get in the back room with some judge and, uh, and uh, uh, defense attorney that might be... Norton Coke or something. Right. And those I, things do happen. Well, you know, it, it also occurs to me now that, you know, people, the availability of information is is increasing, you know, at a never rapid rate. For example, you and me talking, right? In other words, the information that you're sharing with me and with the listeners tonight is information that's very valuable to them if they were to ever enc- encounter a legal issue, right? Uh I mean, this is valuable stuff, and so those people become, they, they, they fall into the category that you mentioned just a minute ago, the ones that are more difficult to arrest because they are empowered with the knowledge. Perhaps. You know, I mean, I could, I could argue pretty good, I think, and I could, I mean, if I ever, I'm just thinking hypothetically, if I was ever in a situation where I had a drug charge or something like that i know five people right off the bat that i can make a phone call to you know that are going to be very helpful in my cause well that's good for you because you're going to need them because uh 90 90 plus percent of uh, all drug cases are are found guilty and uh and almost none of them ever go to court, I think it's something like less than 3% go to court because they say if 5% ever went to court, it would just shut down uh, law in this country. It would just close it down. Mm-hmm. So they all have to be plea bargained away. And that's that's a problem in, in itself, uh, a problem for, for one reason because uh, often people plead guilty to a charge that uh, to a crime that they never committed it because they're afraid to take it to court hmm. and and that's that's a shame but uh, that's the way it works here right um, all right uh, another question did you ever see the movie traffic and what did you yes, think of I it? did yeah I, I thought it was uh, better than most but it was silly kind of silly and uh, hmm. I mean what I thought was silly was uh, can you imagine the uh, John Walters changing his mind about uh, being a drug warrior because his daughter got involved in drugs. I can't imagine that. <laughs> right, right. All right. Uh, let's see. Here's another one. How about uh, if you ask Jack to tell us 
another personal story, some perspectives that he has from his own experience. You know, in, in the introduction that I read, Jack, I'm, uh, I grabbed some stuff off of your own website, which, by the way, is www.leap.cc, L-E-A-P.cc. And I mentioned uh, that you had posed as a fugitive drug dealer who was wanted for all kinds of crazy things, and it sounds like it was just a wild taper. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, if they want a personal thing, let me let me talk about something else. Let me talk about uh, a person that I I refer to as the Good Samaritan. Okay, good. Uh, I was, this was I was probably three years uh, undercover, and uh, we were working in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, in, in the black section because it was a easy target. What we do is cruise in there about one to two o'clock in the morning, okay. uh, with the windows rolled down in the car, and uh, me and a, an informant that I worked with for a while. Uh, you just drive through the black section of the, the what was then the ghetto area, Patterson, uh, slowly, and somebody from the side would yell, "Hey, man, you looking?" You cruise over the side and. And they'd run up and ask you what you wanted. You'd tell them, and they'd uh, run off and get it and bring it back to the car, and you'd pay them and go on your way. And this was just a routine thing we did. And I had a little, I had a, a little Minox camera that I kept in in a hollowed-out uh, paperback book, uh, laying up on my dash. And and I would, uh, as I'm talking to them, I would just pick the book off off the dash and, and as I'm going past the window I take a picture of them mm-hmm. and throw it down on the floor so I always knew who I was I was working on but the the point is on this particular night uh, three young men young black men uh, decided that they were going to rip us off for twelve dollars and in a in a matter of seconds actually uh, from beginning to end uh there was a, a point where I had a knife across my throat, a serrated edge butcher knife, and and uh, managed to back that guy away. And the informant had a gun put to his head. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the the fellow put the gun to his head, pulled the trigger twice, and got two misfires. Oh my God! Uh, and when these people finally we chased them off, and they went running down the street. Uh, in the course of doing this uh, thing, my informant actually saved my life that night he, uh, because this guy had, with the knife had lunged at me to stab me and the informant had reached up and, and the knife had slid right across the palm of his hand and when he when it came to where he felt the guy's wrist, he grabbed the guy's wrist and threw him out of the car. Uh, probably saved my life. My but at any rate, he was bleeding all over the place. So after these folks had left, uh, another young black man came up to the car and saw us uh, standing in the street there and said, my God, what's happening? And he says, I just saw the end of this. What's going on? And, of course, we're playing the role still. I, was, I knew I had to come in there the next night and the night after and, and do my undercover thing, so I'm still playing the role. And I said, man, we... We just came in here to cop some some dope, and, and these guys got to rip us off. You know, I don't know what's going on here. So the, this guy said, "Oh, he he told us he hates drugs, hates them. 
He says, there wasn't such a thing as drugs. He's going to college. He's a young man. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm going to college. He says, I'm doing everything I can. I want to, to get my education so that I can stop these drugs from ever coming into this, this neighborhood anymore. He says, but he says, the only thing that I, I like less than the drugs is, is the idea that when you folks do come in, you get ripped off, you know, and, and, and the violence that's involved. Mm-hmm. And I was still playing the role, as I say, and I was a pretty good actor back then. I was playing like I was uh, sick and needed a fix. And he took pity on me. He said, uh, listen, he said, you know, I, I know there's a guy down the street here a couple blocks. I've seen him out there for years, and nothing, I'd never seen anything like this happen with him. So if you'd like, I'll, I'll drive you down there and show you where he is, or mm-hmm. right down there with him. I said, sure. So he gets in the car. And we, oh, and by the way, a thing that I missed, when he first came out and he sees my, my informant's hand bleeding, Mm-hmm. He says, wait a minute, and he goes in, runs in his house, and he comes out, he's looking like a medic. He's got all sorts of bandages and everything, and he mm-hmm. bandages my informant's hand up, and, and then now he gets in the car, and he takes us down the street. We, we stop, and he says, uh, that, that's the guy right over there. And I said, oh, great, what's his name? And he says, I don't know his name. I told you, I, I don't want anything to do with drugs. Uh, I'm just... I see him out here, and I know he's not ripping people off. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. I get out of the car, and I go over to the guy, and I bought uh, what's called a half bundle, which is 15 uh, little glassine envelopes of heroin wrapped with a rubber band. It's, uh, it's three bucks a piece, so that was $45 worth of heroin. 15 hits? Yeah, yeah, 15 hits. For the people who aren't familiar, how long does that last, a typical user? Well, back then, they, they had to use two hits at a time to get high, so uh, that wasn't going to last too long. But uh, it was, as I say, it was only coming in at one, one 1.5% pure then. Right, now we got 30%. Yeah, as opposed to the 60% pure Jesus. today. But then I get back in the car, and I drive the, this young man back, drop him off at his house, and I go back to the station, drop the informant off, go back to the station, and start writing up my report. And then it occurred to me, I've got to include this Good Samaritan in the report because I had an informant there with me, and if I don't put everything in, I, you know, I could be in big trouble. So I wrote it up just the way it happened and uh, explained this guy didn't want anything to do with the drugs. He just you know, took me over there so I wouldn't get hurt more. Hmm. So about a month later after I'd come up with a whole bunch of uh, people with charges, uh, had a roundup, and back then we were we were arresting people so fast, you know, a hundred people at a, at a hit and doing it so fast that we couldn't possibly go to court if these people pled not guilty. So what they'd do is they'd have the undercover agent stand uh, down in the hallway in the police station as they brought the people in so that they would see, well, this is a hand-to-hand sale, and they wouldn't bother to uh, to contest it. Mm-hmm. So I'm down there standing in the hallway when in comes the Good Samaritan, and when, he, when they went out to his house to arrest him, they told him he was being arrested for uh, distribution, conspiracy to distribute heroin. Amazing. He said, 
I would never, I would never consider doing that. What are you talking about? You know, I hate drugs. I'm completely against drugs. Well, when he walked in that hallway and he saw me, he knew exactly what it was about. Hmm. And as he walked, when he saw me, he walked right up to me, looked me right in the eye, and he said, Man, I was only trying to be your friend. Hmm. And I knew right then something's wrong here. Wow. We're getting the wrong people. What, do, do you know what eventually happened to that guy? Amazing. I know what probably happened to him. Probably mm-hmm. ended up in jail for seven years, but uh, I didn't bother to look. He didn't. He, he you know, he had to plead out because uh, I never had to go to court on him. Right. I wow, was uh, again. Story, I've done Jack, a lot please. of things that certainly have nothing to do with courage, and and uh, I was not courageous enough to see. Well, I'll tell you something. That I caused him. I'll tell you something. You're courageous to tell us about it, and that is something else. So I appreciate it, and I'm sure everybody else does as well. I really appreciate you telling us that story. Um, well, these are people, Mike. Yeah. They're people just like you and me. The okay, only difference okay. is they want to put something in their body that I don't want to put in mine. Mm-hmm. But that is the only difference. They have the same hopes, the same dreams, the, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't some nasty, no good creeps out there and, sure, I, and sure. I would put them in jail in a minute and be very happy about it but right, right, the, right. the vast majority of these people are just folks that would just want to get through life yeah and I mean and, and again I think it's important to recognize that they're using substances that are are for whatever reason not sanctioned but there are certainly ones that are sanctioned and there's a lot of hypocrisy and double standard that goes on and I think that really needs to be addressed but well um Jack, we got about five more minutes. We got. Uh, let me ask you, what should people be doing? What do you think? You know, there are a lot of people that this is going to strike a chord with. You said you have. Yeah, a- well, people should be joining us. That's what they should be doing. But but let me let me tell you the last step of of what we should be doing here. We should be legalizing drugs. We should be having the government produce those drugs so that they're uh, they're controlled for standardized measurements. We can end overdoses and. What we would like to, what I would like to do is I would like to distribute free maintenance doses of drugs to any adult requesting them. Get it out of the schools, get it out of our kids, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that kind of distribution is even thing include, set up like at a clinic like Switzerland does, something and, like that. And are you, are you talking about sort of, uh, in general drugs, you, including things like marijuana or, or Sure, or, I'm yeah. talking about in general all drugs. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about get, getting the profit motive out of it for everyone, including the government. That's why I say it's got to be free, right. because I don't trust the government. I think if no, the no government doubt. could make money by addicting people to drugs, why not? They uh-huh. certainly try to addict people to gambling with the ro- lotteries, don't they? They do a lot of things, yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, but the next step is the most important one, I think. What are we going to do with the $69 billion we save? And what I tell my audience is, imagine a world where instead of spending that $69 billion next year to create harsher mandatory minimum sentences, what would happen if we legalized drugs today and next year we spent that $69 billion to create mandatory minimum, say, education for everyone? How about mandatory minimum health care? Mm-hmm. How about seeing that everybody had uh, some decent housing to live in and job training for people, jobs for anyone that wanted to work? Instead of talking about minimum wage, 
How about talking about a livable wage? That's Instead right. of giving people in the center cities of our country a choice between flipping burgers for $5.25 an hour or flipping dope on the street corner for 525 bucks a day, give them a livable wage in the middle, they would choose that wage. And can you imagine how many fewer drug users we'd have out there mm -hmm. if you give people for the future? Yeah, yeah. give you them know? an opportunity for some sort of a decent future with some uh, dignity, you know what I mean? That's right. And you could do that with $69 billion a year, and mm -hmm. you'd still have money left to create uh, uh, educational programs, programs that really tell the truth about what drugs are and what they aren't, because mm -hmm. we found that education really does work. No doubt. And it works. I'm not talking about that D.A.R.E. program. Right. That was an education. thing in the world. But, <laughs> but uh, it does work, and it's worked on the worst drug we know of, tobacco. Tobacco. By 1965, 42% of the population in this country smoked tobacco, and we were slow getting around to stuff, but by uh, by the late 80s, we decided we got to do something about this. We didn't start a war on tobacco smokers. We started a, a very strong educational program, and in a 20-year period, we cut the use of tobacco in half, mm -hmm. down to 21% of the population smokes. And what we at LEAP want to point out is we didn't have to destroy one life to do that. We didn't have to send one person to prison to do that. There's better ways to spend our money. What, uh, what are you seeing at LEAP right now? What's the, what's the current window? You're getting a lot of new members. You've, getting, you're, you're, you've got lots of speakers that are talking really uh, all over the place, and it seems like you're very active. Oh, yeah. If you, if you go up to our website and go to our events page, you'll see we're everywhere. Just everywhere, uh, and we need people. We need people to work with us. We need uh, uh, people who have never been in law enforcement to work with us because we have 155 speakers. As I say, we're only using 40 of them right now <laughs> because that's all we can get uh, gigs for. Because we need people to sign up with us and get trained so that they can go out and, and get gigs for our speakers. And it's such an easy thing to get the gig, really, because, uh, for instance, a rotary, there's 36,000 36, rotaries <laughs> in the United States, and those rotaries meet once a week, okay, so 52 weeks a year they need a speaker, right. and they're just pleased as punch to have us call up. Right, they're looking for, for content, sure. yeah. Sure, but we need somebody to help us to do that so if Find any of your listeners them, yeah. want to really make a, a difference they can work with us and we're going to end this i have no doubt in my mind that this will end and it's going to end i'd say within 10 years i believe all right well i uh i applaud you guys for what you're doing i think it's great and 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 i'll be uh, i'll be signing up myself here shortly so thank you Mike. <laughs> and i'm sure that we'll have uh, some other listeners that decide to do the same thing and certainly we'll have a lot of people that are checking you guys out and listening to this interview as we put it up in the archives. So uh, it's amazing work and courageous stuff, so I really appreciate everything that you're doing, Jack. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks so much, and, and again, thanks so much for sticking up with us. It's a late night, and uh, boy, you've been you, you've been great. So we really only two thirty here. Oh yeah, it's nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. I'll, I'll be in touch with you. Okay. Okay. Take bye. care, Jack. All right, everybody. It's Jack Cole. 
the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, doing wonderful work and uh, somebody who you might all check out and consider getting involved with that organization, okay? You know, for, for people who are advocating a pro, well, let's say a policy on drugs that is pro-legalization, you know, this is about as close an ally as you're going to get in the law enforcement circles. And I think you should recognize this for the value that it really is. Even if they don't fill the bill completely, if they're not exactly what you're looking for, whatever. I mean, Jack and his associates are doing wonderful work, and I think they're worth a good look at. So I appreciate the work they're doing, and I appreciate everybody else taking a good look at them, okay? On the web, www.leap.cc. Okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, just about 1.30 now in the AM on the 12th of December. Let's play a piece of music here from Sublime. We'll be back in a few minutes, and I'll take care of some regular stuff, all right? It's Mike. Back in a minute. KOPN Columbia, Radio Orbit.
April 29th, 1992, Miami. That's sublime. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, we just had a two-and-a-half-hour amazing conversation with Mr. Jack Cole, the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. If you missed it, Check it out on the web, www.mikehagan.com. We'll have it up in the archives in 24 hours or so. This is one that's worth uh, downloading and sharing with friends and family and anyone that you know, especially if you know people in law enforcement. I think it's one that they'd be interested in hearing for sure. All right, let's see. Um, Well, normally during the first hour, we do some stuff that we didn't do and we haven't done for the last few weeks, so... Try to catch up a little bit right here, okay? First of all, a big hello to everybody listening over the traditional airwaves or over the web, live or otherwise. We're streaming tonight and every week on Monday night via Cosmic Waves Radio Network on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to everybody over there for making it happen for us every Monday night on the web. Thanks also to Larry, the wonderful web wizard, as always, doing wonderful stuff. Always got something good for you on the web there, so hop on and... Check it out. Tell me what you think. All the people out there sending art, music, poetry. Awesome. And uh, so so much of it uh, is being posted up on the forum there that I just love it. So send more, and we appreciate it. We've got great music coming in, and we'll try to feature a lot of that over the next few weeks here. Hats off to Larry for putting it all together, for sure, on the web. All right, check it out. Let me know what you think. On the web, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. You'll have access to everything that we're doing. So take a look-see. All right, let me know what you think. The forum is up. Busy, as always. Lots of interesting topics being discussed over there now every day. There's a chat room that's up and active right now during the program, but there's no reason why that can't uh, be active any other time. Well, he needs a few people to go over there and start chatting it up. It's great during the show because I like to peek in there for questions and comments. And a lot of the stuff that Jack commented about tonight were questions or things that arose up there in the chat room. So I encourage guests as well as listeners to join us over in the forum and in the chat during the program and otherwise. So, okay. All right. What else do I have to say of note? Uh, special announcement. So I wanted to say that my friend Lizzie West and Tony Corraldo, Lizzie and the White Buffalo, will be playing a show on Saturday the 16th down at the Blue Fugue and I think it's five bucks to get in if you bring a piece of paper I'm not sure exactly but anyway just go down there it'll be a wonderful time Lizzie and Tony are great and the good music and good times at the Fugue on Saturday always great music around town in Columbia on the weekends and uh, even in the wintertime and we got school sort of closing down for a little while here. Everybody's in finals and finishing things up, but the next week should be really fun because as finals finish up, a lot of people are sort of itching to get out and get a little bit of uh, music and socializing under their belt. So we'll do that hopefully in the next week and maybe check out Lizzie, maybe something else this Saturday night. All right, right, if you want to get in touch with me, email address orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. On the web, www.mikehagan.com. You can always find information about KOPN on the web at kopn.org. 
And let's see. Let me tell you a little bit about some upcoming guests, and then we'll take a little break, do space weather, chat a little bit, and head on out of here. All right? All right. Let's see. Uh, tonight, Jack Cole, obviously, the executive director of LEAP. Next week, Jay Widener, our good friend Jay Widener, back on the program. I think that Rick Levine will probably make a brief appearance on the program next week. I haven't really heard back from him, but I know that he was looking to do something like that before the uh, before the holidays. So probably a little bit from Rick Levine and the uh, full second part of the program with Jay Widener. Of course, Jay's a friend of the program, been on here numerous times, and lots of those programs have been remarkable. You can check them out and download them for yourself, listen for yourself on the web in the archives. And I always look forward to talking to Jay. He's always a blast to talk to, and he's always got interesting things that are going on. His uh, current project, uh, Odyssey 2012, is uh, a remarkable film that's going to be shown in a whole bunch of theaters around the country. We'll talk about that. And he has another, a new book that's out and some other things. So Jay Widener next week. The following week on Christmas night, 25th of December, Jan Irvin and his partner Andrew the authors of Astrotheology and Shamanism, and uh, also the two guys that put together the Pharmacratic Inquisition on the web. Check that out. Uh, we'll have John Irv- or Jan Irvin and Andrew in two weeks. And Jan was on the program just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and lots of people really like that program, and we'll have a lot more to say about ancient traditions and mythology. Christmas in particular this time, all right? On the 1st of January, the New Year's show, Rick Levine. As I mentioned, he'll probably show up for a brief period of time with Jay Widener next week, but uh, Rick will have the full program on the 1st of January. We'll talk about quantum astrology. We'll talk about what he sees for 2007, what he saw for 2006, and how it all shaped up. The following week, Stephen Herod Buner. Wonderful stuff from Stephen Buner coming up in just a few weeks. Star and Michael, Michael Heisen that is, back on the program on the 22nd of January. Dale Pendell still working that out. Jim Beard still working that out. John Major Jenkins, I'll probably have word from John next week. Even though he's down in Peru, uh, he's going to send me some information about what he's up to so we can talk about it on the program next week with Jay. So we'll hear from John Major Jenkins next week. Patrick Flanagan, doing. Uh, I, I won't tell you a whole lot about Pat Flanagan, but he's another interesting guy who uh, Bardo introduced me to a little while back. So we'll have him in the upcoming weeks and months and lots of other things. So always come on back, and we'll try to keep it real and keep it interesting for you all, okay? All right, let's do a piece of music here, and then we'll come back and do space weather. Lots of things happening up there. The sun's been outrageous over the last week or so, and uh, we got a meteor shower and beautiful planetary formation around dawn next few days last couple days as a matter of fact but I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a few minutes all right it's mike you listen to radio orbit kopn columbia this is under my voodoo check it out sublime on radio orbit i'll be back in a minute
and under my voodoo at Sublime. It's Mike, you're listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, and this is Radio Orbit. All right, let's do space weather real quick here. The Geminid meteor shower, first thing that's underway, sort of weak right now. It's just beginning its entry. Uh, the Earth, as a matter of fact, is just starting to enter into the stream of the Geminid meteorites, but... As the week moves along, the uh, rates will increase. And on Thursday morning, on the 14th of December, you should see quite a bit if you're up there looking at the sky in the early morning. They say up to 120 meteors per hour. 60 minutes in an hour, two per minute, one every 30 seconds. That's not bad if you're just staring at the sky. There's going to be, or there was a night launch of the Space Shuttle Discovery, I should say, on, I guess it was December 9th. It's funny these things happen now and, you know, used to be big news when there was a big rocket launch or something. But anyway, on December 9th, the shuttle lifted off and it was a beautiful sight up there in the sky and there was some wonderful photography taken of it. If you want to take a look at that, you can go over it on the web, spaceweather.com. What else do we have happening? Um, well, over the last couple of days, if you got up really early in the morning, you'd see a beautiful alignment of Mercury, Jupiter, in Mars in the morning sky and again wonderful photography of that particular planetary alignment on the web at spaceweather.com now the interesting thing that happened uh, in the skies above our heads over the last week or so has been Sol Father Son himself has been excited there were two gigantic flares that came from a region called 9.30, sunspot area 9.30, which has gone quiet over the last couple of days, but a few days ago was tremendously active, and it had an X9 and an X7 flare. These are, these are huge, gigantic solar flares, and neither of those were directed toward the Earth, but this particular region is actually staring right at us right now, although it seems to have lost some of the energy that was there. A very strange thing happened, as a matter of fact. It was reported, it's the first time I've ever seen the uh, the language used from NASA. Uh, but uh, they actually called this um, phenomenon that they saw on the sun a solar tsunami. <laughs> and uh, it was really weird. It's like the, this huge wave came out from this particular sunspot area. It was photographed the Soho cameras, and after that, the region sort of mellowed out. But it was pretty wild, because you could see this wave literally just ripple across the surface of the sun. And uh, if you want to see any of this information in more detail, get on the web, go over to MikeHagan.com, and just click on my forum, and there are these stories with pictures and lots of people talking about what they're reading and seeing out there. So, anyway, the sun... This is supposed to be solar minimum, as you know, and uh sun getting all excited the last few days and certainly not behaving as if it were solar minimum. But as even the straight astronomers are telling us these days, the sun is very unpredictable. They see the next solar cycle as one that is going to be very powerful and, again, unpredictable. So... I think you see more quiet about this stuff than anything else. You really don't see people saying, oh, it's no big deal anymore. The sun is certainly more active than it was 
uh, you know, in the last solar cycle. The last ten years have been amazing if you've been watching the sun. And and if we don't have much of an historical precedent to look at, but if you do look at the historical precedent that we do have, the records we do have, the sun certainly is more active now than it has been in the in the couple hundred years that we've been watching. So, anyway, uh, what else do we have here? We've got about ten minutes left. I think we'll wrap up space weather and let's see, take a peek at the web. You know, I should mention something since Jack was on the air. And uh, it's been sort of on my mind since I was in the chat room before the end of the program. There were a number of people that were making comments about drugs being used to solve drug problems. And I think it's an important uh, discussion to have. So let me tell you what I think about that real fast, all right? The solution uh, to much of the modern trouble, including dependencies, addictions on chemicals and, you know, other things. Also, you know, things like psychotic behavior and neurotic behavior. The the solution of that is perhaps one of the solutions, I should say, is direct exposure to the authentic dimensions that are presented by the psychedelic plants and the fungi. The psychedelic position, the pro-psychedelic position, is an anti-drug position. It's an anti-addiction position for sure, right? Drug dependencies, uh, addictions, are the result of habitual, unexamined behavior. Unexamined and obsessive, I should add. And these are exactly the things in our the makeup of our psyche that the psychedelics mitigate. The plant psychedelics dissolve habits and they hold up you know, ideas and motivations to inspection by a less clouded lens and a point of view that's more grounded within you know, the center of the individual. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no risk, but it's absolutely uninformed and ignorant to suggest that the risk is not worth it, that there is not risk worth taking. Because we need a new guiding image, a new metaphor that's able to serve better as a basis for a new model of society and for individual people. And it comes down to plant-human relationships. It always has. Plant-human relationships have always been the foundation of individual and group experience and existence on this planet. You know, Terence used to call uh, the archaic revival. He called the archaic revival something that was a process of reawakening of awareness of these traditional or archaic attitudes toward nature. And playing a big part in that are the plants and our relationship to the plants. And that's what's happening. And maybe LEAP is a part of this. Everything's a part of it, obviously, right now. And LEAP uh, doing their thing in their own way. Uh, but the archaic revival basically 
eventually spells the breakup of the long, long grinding pattern of male dominance hierarchy and, you know, this idea that's been based on the patriarchy and an animal organization that's hierarchical. But pretty soon, you know, that overarching theme is going to change. And it's moving back towards the plants, back towards the idea of a vegetation goddess, the earth herself as the much-talked-about Gaia. And, well, we'll just have to see if it continues. But for my money, that's what's happening. And the gnosis that is available by tapping into the vegetable mind, the Gaian mind, the collectivity and historical morphogenetic field of organic life on this planet. The archetype of the goddess, you know, is returning. And I don't see it as a goddess alone. You know, I don't see it as a shift towards a matriarchy. I see the goddess returning to be with the god. And I see the partnership returning that Rihanna Eisler talks about and Marija Gimbutas, James Mellart, other people like that. You know, but what is ending is uh, the suppression of the mystery religions that were crushed by, you know, enthusiastic Christian barbarians and who knows who else over the last couple thousand years. Five thousand, six thousand, seven thousand, who knows. But, you know, we're bringing it back and we'll just watch and wait and see where it goes. But good work for Jack Cole and the guys at Leap, the girls at Leap, everybody involved. They're doing the best they can with what they've got. And there are people involved in law enforcement. It's a huge, huge thing what they're doing. And I think it's important that we do our best to support them and begin dialogue with them to help them share, uh, to allow them to share their ideas with us and for us to share our ideas with them too. You know, we have things to say too. All right? Okay, look, uh, we'll come back next week. Jay Widener. Should be a wonderful program. Got some great music lined up. Lucas Klotzbach's going to be with me in the studio during the first hour. And I've got some, uh, some other music lined up for the rest of the program. So we're going to have a great time next week with Jay Widener, as we always do. Thanks tonight. One more time to Jack Cole. Wonderful stuff from LEAP, L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, on the web, www.leap.cc. Thanks to everybody who's been participating in the chat room and everybody who participated via email and listening over the web and listening over the regular waves who called during the breaks. I appreciate it all. Thanks very much for uh, listening and for supporting the program. Okay, We'll be back next week, and I hope you all join me. This is Sublime one more time. This is Mike. You've been listening to Orbit on KOPN Columbia. Early in the morning, rising to the street. Light me up that cigarette, and I strap shoes on my feet. Got to find a reason, reason things went wrong. Got to find a reason why my money's all gone. I got a Dalmatian, I can still get high. You got cushion.
might get run over or you might get shot Never had to battle with a bulletproof vest Never stop static, I can't it off my chest Take a small example, a tip for me Take a love your mind and give it up to charity Look what I got within my reach The stuff rocked up, they'll pray for all beach It comes back to you, you're gonna get what you deserve Try and test that, you're bound to get